Hi, my name is Ajne Dawkins, and my current obsession is revisiting my favorite 2000s alternative groups. My name is Brittany Rogers, and I am welcoming all tips on how to stop crying on airplanes. Because truly, we down there. She do. I can confirm. And you're listening to Versus, the podcast where poets confront the ideas that move them. And today, we'll be interviewing Texas Poet Laureate Lupe Mendez. So we hope you enjoy us chatting with Lupe about familiar responsibility, archival, and masculinity. Yes. Okay, Beth, so before we get into this interview, I want to ask you, what was your family's response to you seriously pursuing poetry? Do they know I'm seriously pursuing poetry? (laughs) Beth, please. (laughs) I'm just saying. (laughs) You're the type of person to just text your mama one day like, by the way, I don't know if I mentioned I wrote a book, it won the Pulitzer. Thanks. (laughs) It dropped. Thanks, moms. Yeah, I think that there's still a huge part of me that really tries to keep that part of my life separate. So I have a Facebook largely so that my family can see what I'm up to. So I think they see the things that I post. I don't know that honestly they they know what that means, if if we're being real. I do remember there was one thing that I got awarded and my mom was like, okay, what does this mean before I start sharing it? Because, you know, I can't be endorsing just any and everything. <laughs> and I was like, mom, what you think I'm doing? <laughs> And then she was just like, you know, don't answer that. I was like, okay. I do remember that there was a little bit of tension when I first started traveling a lot for poetry. When my mom had me, she really kind of did the I'm a mom and I got to work thing. And I love her. And I saw how much of a sacrifice that was. And also, I think how much it shifted her concept of herself as a person. And I kind of was like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Respectfully, that's not what I'm going to be doing. So I remember there being a few conversations about, wow, so you're really traveling again, huh? And it was kind of like, you know, I remember you did that in high school and in college, but now you have the kids. And I was like, yeah. And that was, I think, the summation of the conversation. And I think now she's kind of settled into it more, but it's still not, I don't think it's a thing we actively discuss. That's so interesting. I also think that makes a lot of sense. You know the vibes over here. I do know the vibes (laughs) over here. I think for me, because I started poetry so young, Like, my family was super supportive the way they were about everything. You know, they had me playing instruments. I was in music lessons. I was, so it was like one of the hobbies. And then I quit band and basketball for it. And they were like, okay, well, band is what's going to get you the scholarship. (laughs) And then they were like, well, what are you going to major in in college? And I was like, creative writing, poems, and they were like, okay, well, something practical because everybody in my family is like, they're educators. They're my mom's an accountant. Very she very works good. for banks. So they were just like, poems do not pay the bills, Ajane. Like, this was a very cute hobby. Poems do not pay the bills. Like, we really need you to get together. And then I got a scholarship for poems and they didn't believe me. Like, <laughs> they, they literally did not they were buying me paraphernalia for howard because they did not believe that uw madison <laughs> gave me a scholarship for poe <laughs> and that i had to time. it was a time i had to literally print it out and be like y'all like it is not a lot like please look at they said they're gonna pay for me to come to school and now everybody's accepting everybody's very thrilled before a very long time it was I feel like I was like the rapper 
like trying to like push my mixtape on my family. My family was like, Ajne, seriously, like you need to be serious. Like <laughs> you need to be a real adult and like pursue real adult things and get your head out. Yeah, that high fire best. Yeah. <laughs> I had that I was I was pushing my my mixtape, my chat book. Like I promise I'm gonna be a real writer. <laughs> <laughs> and, so that that's that's been my family. And now they're like they're all they're all very excited. They don't understand anything, but like they just ask clarifying questions like, is this a big deal? And I'll be like, Yeah, this is a big deal. Oh, Liz, I love that. And can also co-sign. They they've come to some of my shows. It's very great. They're they're very, so very invested great. in you, Bess. They're so <laughs> they'd be like, gotta support Britney. <laughs> they'd be like, Y'all too deep for me. <laughs> don't know what y'all talking about. <laughs> That's your mom's favorite phrase. <laughs> Oh my god. Oh, they probably listening to this right now. Let's go talk to Lupe. <laughs> Lupe Mendez is a writer, educator, and activist, the author of Why I Am Like Tequila, and the winner of the 2019 John A. Robertson Award for Best First Book of Poetry from the Texas Institute of Letters. He is the founder of Tintero Projects, which works with emerging Latinx writers and other writers of colors within the Texas Gulf Coast region, with Houston as its hub. And not only do we have the honor of interviewing Lupe, the Poet Laureate of Houston, we also have the honor of seeing Lupe in full parent mode with the little one in the studio. So you are in for a very, very special episode. Lupe, we would love if you would start us out with a poem. My pleasure. I'll start off with a a teacher poem. This one is... All of you fold into me. I I wrote this. It's like what, what a teacher feels at the end of a school year, but doesn't say out loud. Right. Go ahead. Ask. There is a box. It is in the garage. Your name on a class roster. When I celebrate you, it's just a moment to keep from feeling you are supposed to forget me. I will tell you already a something of you in it, perhaps a photo, an artwork. I won't name this. I mourn when you leave. I collect the little bits of you, abandoned, and all of you fold into me. Go ahead and ask. I will tell you already. There is a box of something of you in it. It is in the garage, perhaps a photo, an artwork, your name on a class roster. I won't name this. When I celebrate you, I mourn when you leave me. It's just a moment. I collect the little bits of you to keep from feeling abandoned. You're supposed to forget me and all of you folds into me. The 180 days or 85 days or whatever that chunk of time is that you're in a classroom with kids. I've always felt that you end up learning more and growing more than you probably gave to the kid. And the older I've gotten, of course, the, years pass faster. Right. But I've now aged into, there's a part of my life where I was younger than the parents. Then I was the same age as the parents. And now I'm at the point now where I'm older than the parents. And that's a little unsettling, but also it's the nature of the beast. Like I'm older. It It, it is what it is. But I also think of the kids that like the first kids that I taught 21 years ago, 
are now like 31. And so now I'm at the age where I'm getting random phone calls to be a padrino at a wedding or to like be there for a christening or a baptism. And I was not expecting that that part of community happening. Like I'm a part of this thing and now kids' lives whom I have not been in contact with for more than just that one year. And so you are left with this impression or they're left with that impression and you are left with the memory of the thing that they did when they were with you. Yeah, it's so amazing. I have taught from K to college. I started off as a fourth grade teacher Mm -hmm. for first eight years. I Mm -hmm. taught fourth grade and fifth grade and then moved up and down after that. My longest stint has been upper elementary. And what subject? When I first taught, it was all subjects. Mm. I worked at a bilingual developmental bilingual school here in Houston. I served fourth grade for four years and fifth grade for five at one campus. And so I moved up with one class and got to see them mature a little. But then, you know, you just you get the the fourth graders are ready to come to fifth grade and they're they gotcha. Mr. Can I have you as my teacher the next year? And then you have these random conversations. And then if they're siblings, you have one kid and then the little sibling is in the other grade, then you get to know the families and you're you're threaded into what their homes are and what their houses are and, and what they need and how do they get home and what's the amount of money for the bus, the two to three buses that they might have to take to get to where they need to be when they get to campus. And I'm like, yo, I'm proud of you. Like you yeah. grew up into some whole person that's like doing amazing things. And then the other flip side is now that I have a four-year-old, a part of me is like, Oh, I hope I don't screw this kid up. I can, I'm thinking like, is me the teacher and me the dad? Like what parts of those blend into one another? Cause mm-hmm. like, I know how I acted and I know how I act when I'm with my kids that are my students. Yeah. Does any of that bleed into me raising this four-year-old? So far, some of it feels similar, mm-hmm. but not all of it. Like there's other things that I do with her. I know that my patience with her comes from my years teaching. Teaching. For sure. And like the the scaffolding of how try this and now we're gonna try this and now we're gonna do this and now you can ride a bike. Yeah. And like those little things I because of doing that work fits. But sometimes it's I, I wonder, I'm like, I hope I'm not screwing you up, Mika. Oh my god. I'm sure I'm not you're not. Up. And for what it's worth, I think my teacher brain makes me a much better parent. Yeah. Because I'm there are some things that I'm just less worried about. I feel like before I was a teacher, you know, when I thought about like teenagers, I'm like, oh, you can't do this, you can't have social media, you can't be on these different spaces because I have to like make sure I'm protecting you and guarding your eyes and all of these things. And I mean, listener, don't judge, but working at a public school, when you realize the number of things that your kids are exposed to and how early they're exposed to, I feel like parents kind of don't get that side of things. So now it's more about, okay, how can I have responsible conversations? How can I make sure that you can make responsible and ethical decision making? How can I make sure that you have great critical thinking skills? Because that's what you're going to need because there's only so much shielding I can do. And that has made me so much less anxious in some regards. And I think has built a much better communicative relationship between me and my kid because instead of going into it like okay I'm going to shield you from everything and I'm and part of me doing that means I'm like restricting you from all of these things is recognizing that because I see in my classroom every day that no matter how much these parents are shielding and restricting 
kids are having access to a lot of it is being like, okay, well, how can I prepare for the moment when you have access to this and I am not around for this access? Mm. And how can I make sure that you have the tools that you need to make a decision? And also, I know how teenagers make decisions. And so sometimes teenagers make silly decisions. But because I see that all day, every day, it's kind of cushioned my heart. Like sometimes parents will come in and they'll be like, oh my God, my kid is failing your class. And how could they do this to me? And they've disappointed me so much. And I'm like, oh my, they all failing right now. Okay, calm down. It's It's okay. (laughs) It's okay. It'll be fine. (laughs) It's third quarter. When she decides that she wants to rip up all her clothes and run around the house. Yes. It's like, I'm going to turn down the AC. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm not going to freak out about you need to put on some clothes. It's There's a deeper, larger, big scheme world thing. It's this little thing. We're just going to adjust this. We're just going to, yes. And then, yeah. then just go from there. And so I can I know what my teacher brain will say to the crazy things that she might want to do. Mm-hmm. So for instance, at this very moment, as we're having this interview, my child keeps licking. <laughs> and teacher me doesn't bat an eye. Parent me is like, oh, my God, would you stop licking me? (laughs) I've learned to continue doing the thing because I need to get done what I need to get done. Mm -hmm. No, stop licking me. But then and then that's the other part. Like I hear I used to have this thing where I would have conversations with other friends who were in other fields. And I wondered, like I, I like right now, I just said, oh, my God, can you stop licking me? But in my classroom, I would know. I know I've said, everybody, please take out your Elmer's bottles of glue. Please don't anyone take any of the glue and place it on your hand. No one is peeling skin today. We need to finish our project. That doesn't make any sense to anybody else. Yes. If you're not in education, you don't get to, no one, no, no other profession, nobody in engineering is saying yes. something about what to do and not do when nobody else says that. Nobody, <laughs> and no other profession where you hear yourself say, but these are all, this also reminds me that this is a community thing. Like these are the things that you say with family. Like yeah. when we go to said place, you're not going to do this, like things like that. Right. So it's, you know, it feels human. I think this is a great time to slide in our classic. <laughs> What's moving you today? This morning, I heard, oh my God, I can't even think of it. Lola Beltran, who's a Mexican singer. The agony in her voice on the things that she sang. A lot of mariachi songs. And so I keep thinking in terms of, and even in the research I was doing with the latest book that I'm shopping around, the level of which women have carried and carry both history and like witnessing mm-hmm. and that level of care surviving with these things because women outlive men. Like in the work that I was doing for the book that I was writing, every time I needed to interview someone, there's barely any men that are alive from the mm-hmm. time period that I was doing the work. And so women are the ones that are holding all this, this weight, all this story, all this history. And so I listened to like, Nina Simone and Lola Beltran, and I hear a lived experience as much as the capacity of a voice can carry without cracking or bending or breaking. Mm. And even in that, the tone and the melody and the echo and the vibrato in a voice that that does do the work, it is is a weary, experienced soul that, that puts this sound out. And I'm always constantly in awe. And so that's that's what's been sitting today. I was listening to her this morning and I thought about like as she became the singer, what was she like as a kid? 
like how much will my daughter carry as she gets older? Like, what can I make sure that she is okay with? Do what am I able to protect her from? What am I able to caution her towards or away from? And how can I make sure that she's prepared for the things that might appear? Because some of those things I'm not even aware of. Yeah. And so I, that's what's been sitting probably in my chest the most. I'm thinking about this role of women as archivists and about you as the archivist kind of for your family and the folks around you, or do you not consider yourself? I It's weird because I, I'd done another interview for Texas Highways, did an article to talk about my position as, as Poet Laureate. And one of the questions they asked was, why did you feel like poetry or writing was the thing? And I thought about the fact that the utility of being in the position that I'm in, being able to switch languages and a foot in both the U.S. and Mexico, if I'm not able to record my family's story, what am I doing? Nobody else is going to do that work for, for this family. And there's so much that happens within a family's life. Mm-hmm. I need to be able to capture that. Both my great-grandfathers fought in the Mexican Revolution. Both my uh, my grandfather on my father's side was a bracero that traveled to the U.S., in the 40s, working along the the U.S. South from California to Florida, mm-hmm. putting down rail lines, telephone lines, and picking crops. His speaking on his time as a bracero and what he witnessed, the treatment of Mexican men along the border that were getting paid by the U.S. to do the work, but were also being charged right. for water, for food. If they were too medically impaired, they were left on the side of the train tracks Jesus, to figure out their own ways home. So if they made any money, they didn't get to spend what they needed and send home. And some of the families had to, like a portion of the monies was given to the Mexican government and the Mexican government hung on to it. We had to actually like do the letter writing work so that my grandfather could get the amount owed to him from the Mexican government. He didn't get it until he was in his like late 80s. I was already in my 20s when we did the work. And so that like those elements. So part of the archiving is the living elements of like what needs to be captured and explained and advocated for while they're around. And so I need to be able to do that work because if not, it'll be lost. Yeah. I'm the majority of the people on my father's side are illiterate. When my grandmother passed away, she passed away. We had to do the formal documentation so that the lands would go to my our, my youngest aunt, my tia Rosa, would end up with the the her name on all the the acreages of land that that we have to farm on. They all agreed, but because Mexico is Mexico, and some of their laws are still anti-woman, they had to sign a formal declaration stating that they all agreed that she would get the property. So, give being sent the the legal documents so that I could then begin to FedEx it to every single aunt and uncle that's stateside. There's like six of them. And then looking on the actual documentation that the formal writing of their names 
half the names are incorrectly spelled. They're spelled phonetically. Mm. And that's because both my grandparents didn't have formal education. And and so I look at these little nuances and I, I'm like, this is evidence of we have made our way to do these things in a world in which we live. And it is, this is what they were able to come up with. This is how they they existed. And it is not upon me to make the correction and tell them that's not correctly. Nah, we're yeah. past that. It's, yeah. this is where we're at. This is what I can record. This is what I know that my family is. This is what I would like to share with the world before I move on, before I'm gone. Yeah. And then give these stories to my kid and my nieces and my nephew. That is such an important work. Yeah. And I imagine such a heavy work at the same time, right? It's it's this weird like I can I can be Texas Poet Laureate, mm-hmm. but that's not more important than my job as the middle kid in my family. Yeah. Of of all of us as cousins, if there's any major thing that a major decision that needs to be made, I've slowly started becoming part of the large like, well, what does Lupe think should happen? Mm. And it feels very weird in the sense that it's a rural upbringing. Like up until recently, we had dirt floors and an outhouse and kerosene lamps. And now there's electricity. And they put in tiling when I was in my 20s. And so all these larger decisions, though they might seem, I don't know, not as important in a U.S. construct, from from a perspective that's not the U.S., these are the, the things that move our family forward. And yeah. so like, I think I have to think of the larger, broader spectrum elements because those root things that happen in that space affect the rest of my family in California, the rest of my family in Texas, the rest of my family in Illinois. And so we have to be in this constant communication. And there's very few of us that like, when the whole thing happened with my grandmother and her passing away and they needed to make sure that all the land would be in my aunt's name, the first four names that popped up were those of us that end up with college degrees because, oh, well, they'll know what to do. Mm. And in reality, it was like, okay, give me five <laughs> minutes. Give me five minutes. Give me five. I'll, get, I'll figure it. Let's just get. And so like that, that's just the way things have slowly been rolling over the years. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense when I read your work because your work is so, so indicative of like, an archive and an honoring as well. Like I feel like it it balances this space between moving through lineage history and reverence as well and like everybody having their humanity yeah. intact. But I feel like hearing this on the other end of that, like I feel that when I read your work. So yeah. I'm also just thinking about the responsibility of that role as a person who who understands the role of decision maker as an oldest daughter, an oldest granddaughter. Oldest gang. And the person who also was like, I don't know. I've never done this. You know what I mean? <laughs> Why it's would that. I know? It's right. That. But the expectation of knowing. And then even as like the poet, I'm kind of the writer in the family. So I have family members who want to be written about very much. Some who are like, don't ever put my name in anything. <laughs> and so to hear you talking about that, I think really has me stewing and also wondering how you the ethics of like storytelling for your family? I have written things about my grandparents because they've passed away. Like mm-hmm. I, there's a reverence in, and I want to honor them, mm-hmm. but I don't, 
my family is super conservative. They're a farming family. Like they aren't right wing. They're just practical, very down to earth. They don't want their faces on Facebook. And so in writing about stuff, I write about my family in general. There are certain instances where I write to specificity. Things in relation to my father and my mother are part of the conversation. Things I write about my grandfather and my grandmother always are from that that sense of introspection and then honoring their memory as much as possible. But I try to stay away from writing in a way that at this point would feel very judgmental because I'm not in the day-to-day of my cousin's lives. I have my opinions about how some of them are doing what they're doing. I don't know their whole worlds. I'm the oldest of the cousins in our family born stateside. And so the, the, the life of an immigrant child here and what that looks like might be similar, but there's some differences. Like I grew up being, I grew up as an only child in an immigrant family here in Texas. My cousins that live in California grew up in a duplex. So they were living side by side. Their experience is charged in a very different light. They grew up in East LA. I grew up in Galveston, which is an hour from here. Mm. It is a very different understanding as unique as theirs is. And they had a structure. There were, my three uncles were all living under the same roof. My one uncle was taking care of all the kids. All the kids are roughly around the same age. So they grew up together as a close-knit family. Like they would be the great, like make a sitcom out of their life. (laughs) That would have been a dope show. I would watch that because my uncle would run around the house with an apron on cooking the kids food which isn't typical Mexican machista thing to do, but he did that because that was the necessity in the house. And so I can't speak to all their experiences. I would love if one of my other cousins decided to be a writer and write about that, <laughs> but I'm not, I, I'm not going to step into those, those spaces and write about those things. I kind of want to follow up with a question semi-connected to this because I was really invested in kind of the archival of family but also the interweaving of your own coming of age and like coming into manhood and almost the way that you glimpse at masculinity across generations. I'm curious about your own I guess, excavating and like searching or your own like expression of the interiority of your masculinity in the work. I I look at my upbringing and realize that it was one of the most liberal upbringings mm. ever. My mother and father, that is the one thing I know I will do. I will either in a graphic novel or a staged play or some kind of memoir thing or a fiction book, something – I would love to write about my parents' love story. Mm. My mother grew up in South Texas, born in 34, left in 55, moved on her own by herself, all four foot 11 and a half of her, moved to Victoria, Texas to peel shrimp Mm. and to work in a shoe factory. She was not going to live at home. Both her parents had died before she was the age of 16. So her aunt and uncle raised her, her sister, and her brother. She wasn't going to take another dime of them after she graduated high school. She said, thank you. Y'all have already done enough. I got to make my own way in the world. My uncle told her, you will still have a house here. This is your home. 
You don't have to go if you don't want to. She said, no, I have to. And she left. Forward momentum took her to Victoria. She reads a newspaper article that the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston is offering courses in licensed vocation nursing. So she moves her butt to Galveston on her own, not late 1950s, Mexican woman, becomes an LVN by like 58 and works for like a, like 15 to 16 years before she meets my old man. They meet in 74. He crosses illegally into the U.S. with his cousin, my uncle, on Dia de los Muertos, November 1st of 1972. Meets my mother in 73. Lovebirds, they get hitched in 74. He gets deported again. She follows him to Mexico. They get married in Mexico, in Guadalajara. She comes back, does all this paperwork. He's a resident. He's moved back. Now he works for Parks and Rec. They're a happy mm. couple. I'm born as what was supposed to have been menopause <laughs> when my mother was 42. I was born in 76. And that's our house. My mom's 10 years older than my dad. He was born in 44. He made less money, substantially less money than my mother. Even though she was an LVN and he worked for Parks and Rec, we did not make enough money to not live in public housing. So I grew up my first three years in public housing. We had food stamps, but my mom and my dad worked really hard and we moved, quote unquote, out of the projects two blocks away into a regular house. Mm-hmm. Two blocks away. <laughs> and like, because my mother was older and because my father didn't read or write, my mother had the high school degree. I recently just found out she didn't even get an associate's. For the longest time, even when I was applying to college, the whole idea of like first gen college going, I didn't think that applied to me because my mother had some college because I thought that's what she needed to have to get her licensing to be an an LVN. I've been learning now after she's passed away, the racist ass medical history of Texas. All LVNs were given certificates by their institution where they were practicing. And the majority of LVNs in the state of Texas are Filipina, black and Mexican. No white ladies became LVNs. They all got RN degrees. Got it. The, we need people in the hospitals. Let's give them a certificate, but we won't give them college credit. Oh, because that would just be too much. Like, right. That'd be legitimate. (laughs) And so, like, I think about that. And it was recently that I was, like, going through stuff. And I found my mom's old college, community college transcripts. Mm -hmm. And she took all her basics. And I was like, why did my mom have to take all these basics if she's got her LVN? So then I started looking up info on the program. It didn't require any college courses. It was all licensing and thus licensed vocation nursing. I was like, damn, that's that's what she, that was it. And so my dad would cash his check, get a 12-pack of beer, come home with a wad of money, hand me the money, and I'd have to separate all the bills. They would put the bills on the table. My mom would say, that's the bills that we have that we're going to have to pay. Divide out the big bills in between all the big bills that your father gave you for the money and put those in the envelope with the bills. Put all the envelopes over on that plate. And that's how we ran the house. Like there was no, everybody had to do a job in the house. Mm -hmm. And so like when I see TV shows with the man of the house and he made all the money and made all the financial decisions, that shit wouldn't have worked in my house. My dad can't read (laughs) But I can't sign nothing. Like he was the one that figured out how to the house that 
we moved into that they were renting until I was 10 years old. The the owners of that house were also Mexicano. They financed so that we could buy the house. We didn't go through a lending company. Like none of that, what would typically be regular shit that you would do, that did not have, like community was what allowed my family to be homeowners. I was 18 when they paid the house off. When I bought my first place, I was 20. Seven, and I bought a townhome. And when I got on the phone to tell my mother that I bought a townhome, she cried. And she was like, oh, my poor baby went by himself to go sign for his house. Nobody could come with you. And I was like, there's supposed to be people that come with me to sign on my stuff? And I thought about it. And I was like, oh, because we went as a whole family to go sign when they got that. And I was like, oh, shit, I was alive. My mother was 50-something. My father was 40-something when they bought our first house and i sat back at 27 was like oh shit i am i am 30 years earlier able to do these things because of what they taught me how to do and that to me i think of that as a very liberal minded focus and and my dad was very machista about all sorts of shit super typical machista about you fix this thing and talk with a deep voice and you should talk to girls and have a girlfriend in every town, all that nonsense. But there were moments I witnessed him with his brothers who had daughters. And as they got older, he would, I could, I remember him saying things like, did you put the girls in the will when you die? No. Well, why not? They're your kids. Well, their husbands will take care of them. That's not the way the world works in America. And you know that. If something happens and then they get divorced or those men beat them, what are they left with? Your memory. Oh, and I'm like, I'd sit there and be like, I'm going to eat this taco and shut up. Like, <laughs> just witnessing. And I'm like, where the hell did that come from? Where, where, so who what? Are you? Who, is it? who the hell are you? Because <laughs> that's not the same dad at the time. He's like, it's different. You're different. It's not the same. They're stupid. They're not going to make the right decision for those kids. If you were a girl, I would have done the same thing with you now that you're, as you were a boy. And I'm like, Oh, what? And so like that would, that tripped me up. I was like, you would have still had me doing all the crazy shit I was doing regardless because you didn't want to have to like deal with the fallout of having quote unquote, a buena panada daughter. My mom taught me how to hem my pants, how to fix the zipper, how to sew buttons, how to cook, do all the ironing, how to get stains out of shirts. And my dad was like, this is the muffler. This is the the spark plugs. Change the oil. That's how you, you know, undo it so that you can change the oil out completely. Fixing tires, blah, blah, blah. And my mom would tell me, I'm like, mom, why doesn't dad ever yell if I'm cooking and like helping you make tamales? Because your father knows that you're not stupid and you might be alone. And we don't want you to have to worry about that. You don't need no woman to cook for you. You're going to cook for yourself. You don't need a woman. And my dad was like, eh. And he wouldn't, <laughs> like, he, like, he didn't budge on any of that. He didn't freak out. And so I looked to that now as an adult, and I'm like, oh, y'all were progressive. And then I think about the fact that he's in Mexico when they move. Like, it's all word of mouth. Where's the job? Where's community? And he was the first one to leave to go to the States. My grandmother would tell me the story that she would tell him he was 24. Two, 21, 22. This is in the 60s. And she would tell him, she would tell him, why don't you marry so-and-so? She's beautiful. And he would say, why? So that we could have kids that don't have any diapers and their junk just hanging around. 
that's running around barefoot with no clothes on just provide more mouths to feed mm. with no food to feed them with? No, no. I'm going to figure out a way to make money so that we can feed the mouths that we have now. And then he soon, soon after left to go to the States. And my grandfather would tell me that it took him like five tries wow. to go to the States. I was like, five tries in like a month? He was like, no, over like two, three years. And I was like, no education. Like he, I, he dropped out of school in second grade because he had to. So like he had an idea of what he wanted in the world. And the world told him, move to someplace else to go make money. And he didn't think that that wasn't an option. I was scared shitless to move an hour away to go to college. And here is my father trekking across. I can't even, like, if if anybody is Googling, Google Guadalajara, Jalisco to, to Houston. And then tack on, like, another 50 miles. And that is the distance between their house in Mexico to our house in Galveston. And like on the whim of somebody told somebody that there were jobs in Galveston, Texas. Wow. I feel like those are the sort of sacrifices that we really can't even comprehend the weight of. And no. so you're in that same position and no. you're like, what would I have done? And it's like, woo, not that. The, yeah. the, the shit that trips me out is like, my parents would tell me stories that, that they rented rooms in people's home. That is a concept that's like Airbnb shit before Airbnb yeah. <laughs> was some shit, right? Like, but this was the way you lived in the world. Like, bodies of color rented rooms. Yeah. My mother bartered. She would rent rooms and barter babysitting services so that she wouldn't have to pay rent. Uh, and my father, when he came here, the family that owned the house that he rented a room out of only rented to undocumented men because they were all... It's going to pay the least amount of money. They would pack a house with like 20 some men, take a little bit of their money because the majority of their money would be sent home. They offered transcription services. So they would like transcribe, like, tell me what you want to tell your family. And I'll write that down for you and mail the letter for you. Like shit like that. Like stuff to me, that's like uber liberal, yeah. like progressive ways mm -hmm. of, of communicating were the standard way that you communicated to get to get to family. Okay, the way about the menu. Can we take a trip? Yeah, we can pause. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, let's go. Bathroom. So one of the things that we were interested in that you were talking about is you have like a collection of essays that you're talking about working on, talking about possible comic book work. We're wondering about, and then in your newer work, you're playing with form a lot. So we're just kind of wondering about the direction of your work form-wise and what's driving it and what's driving this play with genre and form and Ooh. and like kind of the craft decisions. Because you got some hermit crab poems, which I only know about thanks to this poet. Her name is Aiden from our MFA program. Shout out to Aiden. But yeah, so I was like, oh, this is a hermit crab poem. I saw that lesson plan form and I was like, oh, yes. genius. Yes, genius. It, was, it was really and so I, yeah just wondering about what's like driving this like because that's a lot of play with genre and form in a really dope way thank you i started doing poetry in an open mic scene i did not start into the formal aspect of form until much later in my writing career and so now i feel like it's like jumping into the other side of the pool 
Yeah. I feel comfortable, much more comfortable now pushing the envelope on form and just fucking around to see what pops off. Like, because I have a background in education, I wanted to try my hand at what would a lesson plan look like if it were in the form of a poem? What would a lesson plan look like if it was in the form of a poem during a week of lessons? And just pushing and and shifting the language that way. I think a lot of it was seeing other poets in open mics, seeing how they formatted. Like I would hear them and see them perform. And then when they come off stage, we'd get to talk over a beer or a cigarette or something. And we're like, hey, show me how you wrote that. And I started dipping into form because I would see other poets doing it and they would be practicing on form. And I started learning little bits and pieces back then. Um, but that as I got older, and then especially when I got into my MFA and I learned the formal names of things, is when I was like, oh, that's what that is? That's what that's <laughs> called? Got it. And so... It feels weirdly uncomfortable still because though I do have an MFA, I don't feel like I'm anywhere like some expert idea of like an academic sensibility of all these different forms. I'm always discovering. So the more I read other people's work, obviously it keeps informing all the stuff that I'm working on. Where is it going? I have no clue. I, I know that it's, I am moving so that Whatever forms I'm writing in can be quickly consumed by a non-poetic eye. Mm. So I want community, I, I want folks in this city, in Texas, to be able to read my work and not have to wonder, is he talking about butterflies or is he mm. talking about immigrant? Like, I'm talking about both, yo. Like, I hope you caught that. And so- I will do whatever form I will try and risk and write and create so that it can be consumed with post haste, like so that you get it. And then are left breathless, are left wondering, are left questioning, are left being introspective to go examine and move for yourself where you think you can be moved towards. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Does that make any sense? That does make sense. So I love that you talked about writing something in a way that people immediately have this entry point or this place of access and form as a tool for that, especially because I think historically form has almost done the opposite. Like form It's alienated. Is, yeah, it is alienating. Even for poets, it's alienating. Like we like form is that thing that we kind of like are scared to dip our toe into. So I think that's really, really incredible. I agree. And I'm looking forward to see like more of your form work and more yes. of the play that you're doing. Play is always like so scary to me. So I love when I see people experimenting. And of course, my teacher heart was like, all these poems that include educational elements that are recognizable to me, even outside of poetry, because I'm a teacher. So Correct. that made me, I felt seen. I also feel like I keep wanting to shout out teachers when I'm writing pieces because I don't think there's anybody writing for us. Like, and if they are, <laughs> there's, a, there's too few of those of us that are in the education world that are also doing poetry. And I will, I will put an asterisk on this and I will say this and I don't mean to like hurt anybody's feelings, but if you are in a higher ed institution, there is when oh, I'm going to open a can of worms, but whatever the number of times that I've had somebody like 
turn up their nose at me mm. because I say that I have an MFA. Then the next question is, where did I get it from? Then the, what am I doing and where am I teaching? And when I say I teach at insert high school mm-hmm. and then they, the crazy looks I get. And I feel like when we talk about education, those of you that are doing the work in higher ed, thank you. But please don't make it a habit of disregarding those of us that are doing the work in primary and secondary institutions because I will say with much grace and poise, your day looks very different from Listen. my day. <laughs> and my day, I will say comfortably, probably runs rings around what you feel is your worst day in a nutshell. Yeah, like okay. the, the amount of chaos that I end up having to oversee and put the number of fires out on a day, week, month basis we know the vibes. Correct. <laughs> like, like I, I don't, I don't want to mistreat anyone that's doing the work from an academic point of view. But you've already, you're already looking at at the 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 refined individual because they can discern what they're learning through and can choose to make their choices. I am still riding lightning and getting and encouraging and 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 inspiring individuals who did not think they could do that thing. And that is a different form of how we do this work. Absolutely. And I think that more attention can be and should be paid to that amount of effort. Like, Shout it out the end. Because the people think it's like, I don't know what they think. If if I I can, I know that there are, I can, I know I'm having so a conversation. So you get summers off. <laughs> I know I'm having a conversation with someone who's only taught in, 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 in a higher ed institution when they say, oh, I would never do X, Y, and Z. Or it must be nice to do X, Y, and Z. And I'm looking at it like you're on the opposite end of the spectrum. Of that spectrum, for sure. And it's cool because I would like to be able to do that too because I've already done this. Mm. And I know what I can do if I were able to do that part. Yeah. So our favorite question to ask poets and our final question to you before our game okay. is if you had to name three people of any genre who you feel like have most influenced your work. Right. So and when I say influenced, if someone wanted to like study Lupe, the person or Lupe, the poet, what three people would they need to engage with across and you could choose any genre to understand you and to understand your work? I would say Jose Alfredo Jimenez. Is a composer, Mexican composer, uh, songwriter, lyricist, musician, Janet Jackson. Come on now. Let's go. And Sylvia Plath. I'm fascinated. Plath to me always feels like an underdog. Like I never remember the name of her husband. We're talking about Plath. <laughs> but like when I read her work, I, I when I when I was teaching I will get you pizza later. When when I would teach poetry and poetic voice, I would teach my high school students using her poem, Daddy. And then I would have the kids read the poem. I was like, if you were to read this poem out loud, how would you read it? And the kids would read it and it's soft. And they always do this thing because they see a picture of Sylvia Plath and they think that this is the way she would read it because she looks like a, a white lady and she does this thing. And then I have them listen to the audio of, po- of of daddy and the scathing contempt 
that is dripping off of her voice as she reads this poem. All the kids are like, who is that? I was like, that's the poet reading that poem. She hate her daddy. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) That is factual. And and so like, uh, yes, it's a white poet. She's the only one white poet that I actually teach. But like seeing the struggle that she went through in her day, how she chose to end her life, the circumstances of which that occurred, what was left of her family after that, like that speaks to like, again, what is the body witnessing, right? At Janet Jackson, when I would write poems when I was in high school, I, that was, that's who I was jamming out to. It was her and Selena Quintanilla and Jose Alfredo Jimenez were always on my boombox at my house as I was writing. And then when I got into college, it was like house music. But but that was, yeah, those would be the three. Oh. Okay, so we're going to pivot okay. yeah. into a game. As you know, you want to tell them about the game? We are going to play a little game called Fast Punch. Okay. Would you like to be, because you don't need to know the game, would you like to be an optimist or a pessimist? I will be the optimist. Optimist, lovely. So we're going to give you a thing. And you are going to tell us the best thing in that category. No explanation, just best thing in the category. Rapid fire. Rapid fire. Okay. All right? Ready. Ready. Best bedtime snack. Brownies. Best Nina Simone song. Be be my husband. Mm. Best grade to teach. Fourth grade. Best genre. Play ready. Best place to write. Oh, a hallway on a wooden floor. Nice. Best open mic venue. Oh, here in Houston, it was a place called Taft. Mm. Taft Street. Used to be a... It was a church during the day and on on Thursday nights they would open up the space to do open poetry open mics. My heart. And the they would take down the altar and put a mic stand and a stool. And you had the whole thing until like eleven o'clock at night. Wanna read there. And best poem title. I can't even think I can I know the poem, but I can't think of the title. Self-portrait as a a list. He did there, somebody did a thing like it's literally a list of all the things that he can't do in his house. And it's a self-portrait. Oh my God, I can't even think of it. With self-portrait with or without. Okay. All right, bet. I see you, Chin Chin. Shout out to you. Would you like to close us out by reading us a poem? Yes. I finally, after two years, was able to stick your hand in the water. I was finally able to working through my mother's abrupt passing due to COVID, I was able to write a long form essay that's been picked up by the offing. And so we're going to start doing the edits on it. But part of that threaded essay, very long, I had started dabbling uh, very soon after my mother passed away on the idea of her as a body in space. And so I thought of a nebula and like, it's the birth birthplace of stars. Right. So I, I thought of like all the stories my mom told me, all her favorite songs, all the things. And so I wrote this piece for her. Nebula. Epigraph. I'm always walking after midnight searching for you. Patsy Cline, 1957. I am only allowed to see her for 30 minutes. Shove me in gloves, a gown, a mask all taped up, wrapped up. My brittle mother struggling Her head hangs low, her breathing lower. No one should dim like that. Her lips and fingertips dark, a cobalt I've never seen before. I whisper to her, 
a tremble. It's okay to go. I say, Ave Maria que estás en los cielos. Notice her left arm run my hand across the skin. Watch all the bruises swirl, her blood starting to settle on the inside. We are quiet a moment. I count seconds in between her breaths. Her brow knows what pain is. I want to cry right there, but remember we can't waste time. Tell her I will take care of dad and the baby. She has strength to move the mask from her face. She does not open her eyes. She opens her mouth, her lips dry. I look to see if there is any water to serve this woman who has long served me. There is only oxygen in the plastic mask. I catch a light billow out of her mouth. She moans. My mother cracks open white hot that bright day. I run, tell the nurse something is happening, that she took her mask from her face. All this light from her body is a moan. The nurse says, this is when stars form. The body ends in dust and gas raises up in the blackness, and then my time is up. Her lungs are giving out. I can do nothing but watch the night sky cry all the way home. A few days later, a nurse calls, says, My mother is in the stars. I correct her. No. Night winds whisper to me out in the starlight. My mother is a nebula where all the stars are born where all the light goes to live looking at my mother romanticize her dying dream make her live forever a song una una corazón una diosa rather than this admit that she died alone in a dank hospice room in baytown with the lights turned off this is what i will do walk around the highway. I am a broken astronomer, sing an old tune. I'm so lonesome, I could cry. Ooh, listener, I want you to know I was tearing up at the epigraph, Jesus. My, my, mother, my mother listened to as much Spanish music as she did English music. And so, like, oh my God, Hank Williams Sr., Hank Williams Jr., Johnny Cash, and Patsy Cline. So I grew up listening to, I go out walking after midnight forever. And so when my mother passed away on my phone, you know, you do the shuffle on your phone. That's the song that played on the drive after I dropped my dad off, after we saw my mom for the last time. And I thought about that song and I thought about my mother telling me as a kid, I remember my mother I would ask her, what did you want to be when you grew up, when you were a little kid? And she was like, I wanted to be a Pegasus and live in the stars like a constellation. And I, I would like be like, you wanted a what? What's a Pegasus? And then, then I started like getting interested in constellations and like we would star watch. And I'm like, holy shit, mom. Like, and then when she passed away, I was like, goddamn Nebula. Like all these different things that are birthed when your mom puts a crazy idea in your head that you can do 
anything. anything. Wow. And so I like, I, I thought about, yes, the hardness of her passing. Yes, the difficulty that was her life. But then I also think about all the bright things that she mm. produced and created and espoused and her laugh and the joy that she got to bring her for the two years that she was around in her life. And I think about that with, with an amount of joy. Like it's a solemn thing to know that the, that the, that the, that the virus took her, but it's also, there's an echo sitting always at least a foot away from me of what my mother was like, because there's so many things that she does that my mother would do. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's always this like continual process thing. And so it does that sound like so a sad beautiful. poem, but for me, it's a song. Yeah. Mm. That's so beautiful. My God. Yay. Oh, what original to end this on. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank, Thank you so much. Yeah, oh Brittany and I have both cried at one point or another during this whole situation. So thank you. I think one of the things that stuck with me and put language to so much is Lupe saying, I'm the poet laureate of Texas, but that's not more important than being the middle child of my family. Yeah. That took me out. My yeah. oldest child felt his middle child struggles and was like, we are here. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm always struck by the things that are more important than the work, but that are like the most critical thing to shaping the work we're doing. Whew. You know what I mean? Yes. And do. Whew. Best, I want to ask you, because we talk so much about archival today and what our work means to our families as they're like wrestling with what we do <laughs> and I guess also sometimes finding themselves in our work. I want to know who you're archiving for. Oh, that's an excellent question for Gloria Jean forever and ever and ever. I hope that I'm doing some archival work that reaches the generations that I don't know yet. I think so much of learning about who I was was also learning about who my grandmother and her grandmother and her grandmother were. And so hopefully my future generations have that work to look to look to. And hopefully my work is like a great archival for my mom. I don't know that we talk about poems a lot, but I think sometimes having someone who sees you outside of your own gaze or outside of your own lens can be a really healing thing. Mm. What about you, Bess? I love that so much. I want to toss in there that you're also archiving for Detroit. Oh, hey, gang, just, gang. Really <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Oh, where is my brain at today? I just want to. I just wanted to to toss that in there. Um, Thank you, Bess. Detroit gang forever. Migration babies forever. Great migration babies forever. Yeah, I am definitely archiving for my mom. I think similarly, so that. Like this idea of her seeing herself from my gaze, but also her being celebrated. And like, I think I came up in a space where I was, it was repeatedly told to me that stories and specifically my story, the things that I had to say really mattered. And I don't know that my mom came up in that same kind of space. Mm, um, yeah. And so I'm really invested in being a part of archiving her story and treating it as something that matters because it does to me. I am absolutely archiving for the generations that are going to come after me 
And I think I'm archiving for Black women who are processing maternal relationships in general of any Mm. age, because I think there's something very specific about realizing something is a universal experience or more of a universal experience than you thought it was and being able to see it. And there's like this clip going around of Tina doing Beyonce's hair and Beyonce's like, mom, that's so annoying. And I'm like, Beyonce get aggravated with her mom too. (laughs) (laughs) And it's obviously this like loving, you know what I'm saying? It's obviously coming from this place of just like intimacy and love of like, you are really getting on my nerves. But why this like small moment, this 30 second clip made me feel so seen. And so I'm invested in that and and archiving for black women in that way so which yeah just makes me think about lupe's how many stories lupe was invested in telling us about his family and how how beautiful they were and like how many stories he is just constantly carrying like for me lupe is like the definition of archival and he does it in such a beautiful way absolutely so i want to carry that with me as i'm thinking about what it means to be an archivist Nice, Beth. In the spirit of that today, I think I'm going to thank my family archivist, my Auntie Sandra, who is letting me use all her documents, her Ancestry.com, who's sending me the plot diagrams, and who's really doing the work of holding the family history and not just holding it, but being willing to talk about it. I love that. I am going to thank I guess I'll think my family archivist too. She passed away. My Aunt Donna, rest in power, who was very invested in familial history and did a lot of work tracing before her death. And I'd like to thank my mom for permitting me to continue to archive her stories, even when mm. that has been like a difficult, intense process. Whew. Shout out to the matriarchs. A indeed best. Let's say we thank some folks and get out of here. Let's do it. So we would love to thank Nathan and the amazing staff at Baron Studio, the Poetry Foundation, Itza Blancas, Adalmi Noriega, Elon Sloan, Sin Pim, and Ombi Productions. Please like, rate, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Bye y'all.